kiddos, you guys are dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to Matthew 1 is where we're going to be this morning. We covered a little bit last week, but we're going to cover a little bit more this week uh, because we are in our Advent series, Merry Christmas. Cool. All right. Y'all are excited about Christmas. Um, You guys braved the wind and the rain in Christmas time, and you're here So thank you for coming. Um, But yeah, we're going to continue in our Advent series. Uh, Typically, Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. uh, Because Joshua took us a little longer to get through, Um, we're condensing it down to two weeks. Uh, But Advent is just simple. It's Latin for coming. Um, So what we're celebrating is the coming of Christ. Um, That is the point of Christmas. Um, But it's also kind of a, a double meaning. So yes, we're celebrating, we're rejoicing, we're remembering in the first coming of Christ. Uh, but because we live where we live in redemptive history, we're also looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Um, and so there's so much that God answered um, through Christ's coming, paying atonement for our sin, and we're going to study some of that in a minute. But we're also looking forward to the day where there is no more sin, where there is no more death, and we're just kind of stuck right in the middle. Um, so Advent, for a lot of times, kind of goes into a season of waiting, to where we can look back and remember all that God has done for us and as far as he's brought us. But then we can also look forward and have a hope and a future, and, and this isn't it. I mean, if, if all this is is we live, we die, we turn into worm dirt, uh, I'm going to be doing things a lot differently, right? But that's not the case. That's not where we live. We live in this point in history where we can look forward to Christ coming and, and redeeming us fully, making the new heavens, the new earth. This is going to be an incredible time. So um, as I mentioned last week, there's, there's three pleas I want to lay out before we jump into the text, um, just to kind of get our mindset around uh, where we are going into Christmas Advent season, because uh, we're three days away, which is just crazy. So um, maybe if you haven't done these, you still have a little bit of time to do so. Uh, But the first I would say is slow down and remember his first coming. So through this season, we we need to slow down. And this is going to take intentional work. This is going to mean we're going to have to tell some people no, some family members no, um, some loved ones no to different events. But we need to purposely slow down and remember what it is what we're celebrating. What it is that Christmas is actually, it's not the hustle and bustle and, and the grind of going to visit all these different families, and, uh, but it's to slow down and remember what Christ has done. The second is to look forward to his coming and think about and meditate and pray on what that day is going to look like. And if we do that well, if we do that effectively, it'll change how we live today. That in this season of waiting, in this moment of waiting, if we can look back and remember what Christ has done, if we can look forward and remember what he's going to do, it's going to change the way we live and dream and pray today. So with all that being said, let's look at Matthew chapter 1 to kind of understand what's happening. And as you're flipping there, uh, just a, a quick question. Is everyone done Christmas shopping? Raise your hand if you're completely done. Like you have no more Christmas presents to buy. Oh, look at me. I'm telling you what though, Amazon, who has bought every Christmas present from Amazon? It is fantastic. Uh, For those that don't know, Daniel lives in our basement, and my wife and I have both ordered so many Amazon presents that now Daniel has to open all of our boxes for us um, to see, like, is that mine, is that hers? But we've literally killed it in the Christmas shopping department. It's going to be awesome. You're going to see Bree's presents all over Facebook on on Wednesday because of how good of a present I am, or gift giver I am, right? So she doesn't know. This is the, I cannot keep surprises, but this is going to be fantastic. She's going to love it. Uh, for those that don't know, we are pregnant. Merry Christmas. Just kidding. That's nope, nope, not doing that. Not doing that. Just joking. 
Bree's having a stroke in the back. That's not happening. We are done. The, the best Christmas present I ever received was a vasectomy. So, man, we have gotten off the chart. I don't know where any of that even, I just started rolling and there it went. Uh, yeah, all right, so let me reel that back in. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, but here's the deal. Here's something that I heard said growing up in relation to Christmas presents that, that honestly, like, I just thought was a bunch of hogwash. But now the older I'm getting, the reality is starting to set in. That I don't, I don't need any physical presents. I just want your presence. Did anybody's grandparents say that growing up? Like, don't buy anything. Don't worry about anything. Let's just spend some quality time together. And growing up, I just thought that was a load of it. Like, that's dumb. I don't want to spend time with you. I just want presents. I want something to open. Um, but the older I'm getting, the more gray hairs start popping up in the beard. That's becoming more and more of a reality. That I don't need anything, honestly. Like, just give me some quality time. Let's slow down. Let's enjoy life together. Um, now, I know some of my family members listen to podcasts regularly, and so let me add a quick caveat to it. There's some family members I don't want to spend time with. Just send me a present, right? But for the majority of them, I want to spend that quality time with, uh, because for us, we're just in this age where the kids are growing rapidly, and if we could just slow down and remember the Christmas season as just this presence, we have the memories. Um, there's this one spoken word poet that just has this phrase that always gets stuck in my head, that we only have what we remember, right? So at the end of the day, all of this stuff is going to end up in the trash. We're going to sell it. We're going to donate it. Um, but we can only have what we remember, these memories of Christmas, this presence. And so this morning, as we look at Matthew 1, we're going to pick up, um, last week, we were looking at this word, Emmanuel, God with us. That the ultimate thing that God offers us is his presence. He's, with, as Augustine would call it, his withness, that he's with us. So I just want to spend some time this morning understanding that at a deeper level. I do have a quick present for everyone in the idea of presence. Um, here's, your, here's your present. Merry Christmas from your pastor. This is going to be a short sermon. Everybody good with that? Jake, you just rolled your eyes. You want a long one? All right, never mind. I'm taking the gift back. I'm going to start preaching. Oh, I got, that's right. I got to preach two sermons because we don't have church Sunday. All right, here we go. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Matthew 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, Mary and, oh my goodness. when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is her, in her from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, as he did, the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So let us pray. And Father, as we look this morning at this powerful name that you've given us, Emmanuel, God with us, as we slow down in this Advent season to remember your first coming, to long for your second coming. Father, we just pray that you would pierce our hearts this morning, that we would truly understand what God with us actually means. 
that this is some lofty poetic language, Father, but this is what brings us comfort in the darkest of nights. This is what holds us together when nothing else will. Your witness, that you are with us. It doesn't matter the gifts that you give or, or anything else, Father, but your presence with us is all that we need. And will we be reminded of that this morning? It's your name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at this idea, Emmanuel, God with us, and we combined it with the idea of the Advent candles with this idea of hope that the best way that we could define hope, or one way that we could define hope is this, is that simply God is with us. And the inverse would be true. What does hopelessness mean? God without us, us without God. And so we looked very clearly, the purpose of Christ's coming is so evident in here in verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. So we took time to look that our sin is what separates us from God, so in that sense, we are hopeless, that we have no chance of being right with God because of our sin. But here we have Christ coming, a Savior that's going to redeem us, that's going to rescue us, so that God with us is the only way that we have any sorts of hope. So that was last week, but this week I want to look at maybe a different thing, because as we read this story, and I said this last week, I don't, I don't know that anyone... And maybe you have, and praise God that you're here, but I don't know that anyone is not somewhat familiar with the Christmas story. That we haven't heard some kind of variation or form, or, or we know what we're celebrating. Christ came, and there's like an angel, and, and some shepherds, and some wise men. And, and we know some reality of the Christmas story. But if we're not careful, we'll over-romanticize it. We'll skip right over it and, and not put ourselves in the first century shoes of Mary and Joseph and realize the reality of what's happening. Because how in the world did God decide to show up? I mean, if this is the coming of God through Christ, the incarnation, how did he then decide to show up? I mean, let's just look at the reality of this. He decided to show up as a baby, right? He decided to show up in a manger. He decided to show up through a 14-year-old engaged girl. He decided to show up to, uh, uh, the father was a carpenter in a pretty much desert region, just kind of let the, he, Joseph wasn't rolling in it. It's not like he had business all the time. So how then did the God of the universe decide to show up? What was his, what was his message? What was his uh, way to show up? What was his way to arrive? Who, who was the first ones that really noticed him? Shepherds. So we look at the story and it's so great and so magnificent and we love it and we should rejoice in it, but it's just strange that the God of the universe would choose to show up this way. It's not normative. If you were author, if you were writing this story, you would not choose to write it this way. There's no magnificent entry of the king. It's a really strange one. And it's okay to say that this isn't some like blasphemous thing to say, because there's a purpose in this. And, I, and I'm not trying to knock Mary. Mary's incredible, and she obviously was faithful, and that's why God chose to uh, deliver her. But we also need to look at Joseph. What was Joseph's point of view going into this? I, I think just the life of our church, uh, I, I get maybe three, four questions a ton. Time management, what is Calvinism? Am I ready to get engaged? Am I ready to have kids? Th those are kind of the four main Four main questions I get often, right? So let's just, let's just, with that framework, 
Look at Joseph for a second, because Joseph has just spent all of his money to even earn the right to propose to Mary. So all the money that he had, he's not even asking anyone about kids. Kids are not on his framework. All he's thinking about is a wedding. And now he's found out, hey, uh, here's the son that you're not financially ready to provide for. And by the way, that's God's son, so you better not mess up. A little bit of pressure there. That God with us, the way that God chose to show up, was not at all how Joseph would have dreamed. It's not at all how Mary would have dreamed. But here's what we do if we're not careful. We read this and we marvel and rejoice. Oh, isn't it great how God showed up? Christ was born in a manger. Isn't this incredible? But when God shows up in our lives in the unremarkable ways that we would not have planned, we get really frustrated about it. That we take this story and we totally over-romanticize it and make it this great marvelous story, which it is, but we don't look at it through the lens of Joseph that's wondering, is my life ruined because of this? Am I going to have to divorce this woman? Everything that I planned, everything that I thought is now destroyed because of what's happening. And I still don't even know if it was actually this Holy Spirit. Maybe it really was Brad. I like this idea that it was Brad. We should go get Brad. So much so that an angel had to come to Joseph and go, no, 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 it's okay. Have peace. I'm doing something here. But I think the majority of us don't realize that God with us doesn't look picture perfect and poetic as we think. That God with us doesn't look like a 14-year-old unmarried woman now pregnant. That God with us isn't this romantic, perfect scene where nothing's going to go wrong. No, God with us means even in the depths of our despair, God is with us. But somewhere along the line, and I don't really know where to point to, there's a couple points in history I think I could, but I think it's just the sinful nature in us. That we've bought into the lie that God with us actually means that everything's going to be picture perfect for the rest of our life. That if I'm going to follow God, that everything's going to end well for me, that, that nothing bad's going to happen, that everything's going to be perfect, I'm going to make a lot of money, no one around me is going to die, no one's going to have divorce, there's going to be no hardships around me because God is with me. And I know this because I do so many counseling. I talk to so many of you guys that go, man, why did God let this happen? Where was God in this? If God really loved me, then this would not have happened. So we take this story of Jesus' incarnation and we misunderstand the whole scenario of it. That an angel had to show up to Joseph to say, listen, this, this is my plan. Don't freak out. Don't worry. This is my plan. So what I want us to wrestle with just over the next few moments is this. That God with us does not mean that everything is going to end happily ever after. That's not what Emmanuel means. God with us means that even in our greatest despair, lowliest moments of life, God is with us. So the question is, do, do we believe that? Are we excited about Christmas and the incarnation because our life is going to be better for it? Are we excited about the incarnation of Christmas because now God is with us no matter what? So last week I quoted a, a Charles Spurgeon uh, quote uh, from a sermon on December 24th, 1854, as he's preaching about Emmanuel. And I want to quote another piece of that sermon because um, he's Charles Spurgeon, that's why. So here's just a quick quote. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. He is now God with us. 
Believer, he is God with thee to protect thee. Thou art not alone because the Savior is with thee. Put me in the desert where vegetation grows not. I can still say God with us. Put me on the wild ocean and let my ship dance madly on the waves. I would still say, Emmanuel, God with us. Mount me on the sunbeam and let me fly beyond the western sea. Still, I would say, God with us. Let my body dive down into the depths of the ocean and let me hide in its caverns. Still, I could, as a child of God, say, God with us. I in the grave sleeping there in corruption. Still, I can see the footmarks of Jesus. He trod the path of all his people, and still his name is God with us. So as we're walking into this Christmas season, can we utter those words of Spurgeon? Can we utter those words of the psalmist? That no matter where I go, I cannot flee from your presence. When I go to the deepest spots, you're there. When I lay down, you're there. When I rise, you're there. That God is constantly with us. And what are the implications of this? And what does this mean for us today? Because here, here's just the reality. There's some of you that are still carrying a burden and an anger and a frustration to God because you felt he wasn't there. And the other half of you, that's going to happen to you at some point. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be pain. There's going to be despair. There's going to be loss. And if we misunderstand this phrase, God with us, then we're going to run, then we're going to rebel, then we're going to curse the ground that God has blessed us with. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Philippians 4 for me real fast. This is not historically a Christmas text, but here we go. Philippians chapter 4. And I think for us, if, if you have any, any background in church, if you ever had a Christian t-shirt, you're going to recognize one of these verses. But I'm going to plead with us, that is not what Emmanuel means. Brother, Philippians 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revi revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, has somehow been hijacked by every high school sports team in the South. Right? Listen, bro, I love you. You're 95 pounds. You're not snatching 300 pounds. All right? Christ is not going to strengthen you to that level. Right? You're a 1A high school. You're not going to go beat that 5A high school. I just don't know that God cares about high school sports. I'm sorry. That's not what the point of this text is saying. If we understand the context of this, Paul, who's writing this, is in prison. He's in house arrest. This is the last, this is called a prison epistle. 
right? This is one of his last letters that he's going to write from prison before being martyred for his faith, before being killed for preaching the gospel. So this isn't in the context of, oh, you can do whatever. This is Paul in prison writing, listen, I know what it means to have everything I've ever dreamed of, and I know what it means to be sitting in chains. I know what it means to have good, have right, have everything I've dreamed of, and I know what it means to have nothing. In light of both of these, I can do it all. Through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe another way to say it, because Emmanuel, God is with me. So Paul should just be a learning curve for us. When we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, we're not saying God is going to give us everything that I want. We're going to utter the words of Paul in verse 12 that I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I mean, church, can we say that? Does God with us, Emmanuel, wrap us all the way to the core where we can stand in front of one another and say, listen, I'm good. Church, I'm good. With want and with plenty, I am good because I have the portion that will not go away. Because I have the good portion. I have God with me. So, man, if I get blessed by this, praise God for it. And if God takes all of it away, praise God for it. And it's really easy for us to say those on some things. God, if you choose to take away University of North Georgia where I can't go to college anymore, God, I'm good with it, right? God, if you choose to take away the IRS where I don't have to pay taxes, I'm good for it. I take it. But if we're not careful, we start building idols of really, really good things that if God were to remove those from us, God with me is not enough. And I feel like I've confessed this time after time. I, I, I wrestle with that with my family right? I wrestle with that with my job. I mean, I have the greatest job in the world. I hope you guys know this. So if God were to start taking some of these things away from me, could I honestly say God is with me and that is enough? So one of the things that, that we want to talk through this morning is the idea of peace. So Advent has these four main pillars that we teach through and we meditate on and we learn from, uh, and they're derived straight from Scripture. This isn't some extra biblical thing. Derived straight from Scripture. And so one of those that would be the one that we were to teach this morning would be peace. Peace. And, and when we think about peace, the immediate definition that comes to us is more of a worldly definition, which means freedom from disturbance or tranquility. Freedom from disturbance or tranquility. So what is peace for us? I mean, just take a second. What is the most peaceful thing you can ever have? I mean, just let your mind wander for a second. Are you laying on a beach, having a pina colada in your hand? Virgin, of course. Are you, just, are you sitting there looking at the mountains, the sunset, just watching it go over? What, what is peaceful for you? But if we're not careful, which not, that, not that's wrong, but we take that idea of peace, the tranquility, the, the removal of all disturbance, and we put that into peace from a biblical perspective. That peace for us means that God should remove everything, that we should live in a tranquil state. But what we see all the way back into the Hebrew language, that peace means to be complete or to be whole. So worldly peace means no external disturbance. Biblical peace means no internal disturbance. And these are massive difference. 
Because when God promises peace, he does not promise tranquility that we're going to have no external disturbances. Actually, he promises the other. But with God with us, God with me, what he promises is a peace that surpasses all understanding. An internal disturbance that cannot be wrecked by anything externally. That's what biblical peace is. If we take this God with us and we run it all the way to its course, that means that if God is with me, I have the internal peace that I need to face any situation at any time, and God can literally remove the world from around me, and I'm at peace. I'm at shalom. I'm, I'm good. And this isn't some fake kind of good, like, oh, I'll be fine, and then I go into my closet and cry. This is a true, genuine peace that surpasses all understanding. And maybe you've lived long enough to have an experience with an older brother or sister in their faith. When you watch something happen in their life and you go, man, if that ever happened to me, I'll be wrecked. And you're watching them handle this and go, are you in shock? Like, are, are you lying to me? Are you actually okay? Because something massive has just happened and, and you say, it's fine, I trust God with that. I don't, our tendency is not to believe that person to think they're lying, they're exaggerating, they're just going through shock. But, but there is an idea of peace that surpasses all understanding. I mean, we fast forward Jesus in a manger to Jesus at his death. And if we read through the crucifixion story and him remaining silent in front of Pilate, him remaining silent in front of his accusers, how? Why? If anybody says a lick of things that are untrue against me, I just want to attack them. I never said that. I never did that. Yeah, I talked about vasectomy in the sermon, but that's the only thing I said. But we see Christ being murdered for something he didn't commit, and he's sitting there taking it all. That's a peace that surpasses all understanding. So as we start to really lean in on this, uh, I just want to read two passages real quick. Romans chapter 5 and John chapter 16. You can flip to either one of those. Romans chapter 5 and John chapter 16. And as we're flipping there, I just want to read a quick C.S. Lewis quote that kind of puts up, maybe puts all of this into a real practical step. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I did not go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of whiskey could do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. Let me just read that one more time. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of whiskey would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. And here's what we're starting to wrestle with. That if you became a Christian, if Christianity for you was church for you, is just to make you feel happy and content and comfortable, in the words of C.S. Lewis, that's not it. I do not recommend Christianity for that. Because John 16, puts it this way. I've, this is Jesus talking. I've said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In me you have this internal peace that cannot be disturbed. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I've said these things to you so that you will have peace. You will have an internal resting. Not external, because in this world you will have many trials and tribulations. That does not mean that God is not with you. The fruit of God being with you is even though your world may be falling apart, 
you have peace internally because Christ has overcome the world. He's defeated sin on the cross. And Romans 5 would put it very similarly. Therefore, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So those who have placed our faith in Jesus, if we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Sounds awesome, right? I mean, we, we have been justified. We have hope. We have peace. Man, this is going to end really well for me. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice also in our sufferings. What? So we have peace and we have hope. But then right after that, he says, we're going to rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in whom he has given to us. God with us brings us an eternal peace that surpasses all thought, all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding. Now, please hear me, because I know this is not like that Chipper Christmas message that we were all hoping to hear. I hope, by the grace of God, that we don't have these things. I don't, I don't relish in the times that I get a phone call or a text message, hey, man, can you meet and talk about this because my life is falling apart? I don't live for those moments. I'm not wishing this upon any of us. But what I am wishing is that we would be a true bride of Christ. That as we wait, as we're in the season of waiting for Christ to come back, as we're in a season of waiting for all things are made new, as we wait and long for a second coming, I hope that we know him in the deepest level possible. And if we were to take this maybe from a, out of a spiritual experience and into more of a um, practical experience for us, yes, we can bond with one another through great times, and I'm sure that's happened to all of us, but true lifetime bonds are formed where? In trauma. True lifetime bonds are formed in suffering and pain and despair. That's when we know who's on our side. That's who we know who's with us. That's when we know who's going to cry with us, who's going to sit with us, who's going to pick in the suffering and in the pain. But peace does not mean that everything's going to end perfectly, nor should we want that way, because we're going to miss out on the greatest intimacy possible with our Father that comes in the trauma and the wrestling and the despair and the hard times. That God with us does not mean everything's going to be great. God with us means that we can do anything because he's with us. So when we look at the original story, Christ coming on this earth, there's a reason that he said Emmanuel. There's a reason that was his name, because Mary and Joseph both needed to know that this is actually God with them. Because if not, they couldn't have done it. If this was not God with them, Joseph would have divorced. Uh, Mary would have been by herself trying to raise a child in that culture, which not, would not have ended well. That if God wasn't with them, all of this would have fell apart. 
So they desperately needed to know, God, are, are you here? Is this Emmanuel? Because if not, this is going to end really bad. And so for us going into this Christmas season, this peace, this internal rest only comes from God with us. So as we start to end our time together this morning, I just want us to wrestle with that. Because here, here's what I know. Here's a few things that I know. I know some of you have no concept or framework for what I'm talking about. That you've had a great life. That there's, there's no examples that you could put in here. There's no ways that you can actually understand this because you haven't walked through these despairs of life. And on one hand, I say praise God for that. But the other hand, I want to say get ready. Press into Read Romans 5, read John 16, understand the narrative of Scripture, that it is coming for us, that sin has destroyed everything, and one day it'll catch up. And so study, read, understand Emmanuel, God with us. We have an internal peace that surpasses everything else, because God is with us constantly. There's some of us in this room that are walking into that season or maybe out of that season, and you just need to hear that you're not alone in this. That it's okay to wrestle and to be frustrated and to wonder, God, where were you in all of this? That's okay. But don't take it to the point where you say, God was not with me, because I promise if you've been justified by faith, that is not true. I'm pleading with you to remember that. And for others, you're in the deepest despair right now. That you're walking into this Christmas season and you think there's no way God is with me. If God was a good, loving God, this would not have happened. If God was really for me and not against me, then why did he let this happen? Why does everything around me seem like God is against me? And I'll just press into the meaning of Christmas. That God coming from heaven to earth to save us from our sins is the point that God is with us. And then maybe the last Maybe you just don't know where you stand on any of this. You don't, you don't think God is really there. You have some questions. You have some doubts. And you just kind of like, I'll give my time to figure this out. Let me just make one final plea with you, and then we'll pray. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. I know as we walk into this Christmas season and things are good, like, oh, yeah, I guess Jesus is pretty good, but you're going to forget him about him in six months. That's not how kingdom works. So for some of us, we just need to hear, stop playing games. You're either justified by faith in the sight of God, or you're not. And I love, I'm saying God is, wants to be with you. He has came to save us from our sins, but we have to repent, we have to believe. We have to trust in him for our salvation, that we cannot do this on our own. So no matter where we are this morning, uh, we're going to take a few moments just to pray and consider if you have been justified by faith, if you are a believer, we're going to have communion set up over here that you could just take, remember, rejoice that God is with us. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. It doesn't mean everything's going to be a happily ever after. But it means no matter what God throws our way, God is with us. And we can do all things through him who strengthens us. So let us pray and remember through communion and continue in worship. Oh, Father, we're so grateful that you are with us. Father, we pray that we... <laughs> it's more of like a journaling technique.
but I listen to a lot of spoken word too. And one of my favorite spoken word artists, he, uh, he says that the biggest oxymoron in the English language is the word almost. You cannot be all of something and most of something. You must be one or the other. And I think about that a lot. You must be one or the other. You can't be almost saved. Almost has a gray area. And we see Joshua says there is no gray area. So the question is, Christ died fully on the cross and God keeps all of his promises. So why do we almost keep our end? Christ went all the way down Calvary, all the way to death. Why are we living an almost lifestyle? Why are we singing, I surrender all, and living, I surrender almost? Why are we, instead of living in the righteousness of who God is, living in the right-ishness? God has called us to more than that, and we have to answer that calling. And if you haven't made the choice to follow God before, don't feel rushed into it. If you're still discovering and seek, seeking, do what Joshua does and look back and discover and seek in the past and see what God has done leading forward. Because I don't want you to come to salvation for promises of what have happened in your future. I want you to come to salvation in honor of what's happened in your past so we can carry that into the future. That's what salvation's for. Like I said, I don't wanna rush anyone into this decision because it's a hard one. God asks a lot. And thankfully Jesus pays the price that we can't. But we gotta keep trying guys because that's what he deserves. Even if you aren't a believer, I guarantee you can find something in that. Something in, in the history of what God has done. The last thing in this passage Joshua does is set up the stone as a witness to remember the promise they made to him. In Joshua 24, verses 25 through 28, if you're still there. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God, and he took the large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it, is, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Joshua washes his hands of the unfaithfulness of Israel. He says, I've told you what the Lord has told me. It's on you. And he leaves this memorial stone, something we've seen Joshua do over and over. And he puts it underneath this tree and he says, this, every time you look at this, remember the covenant you made here. Remember the vows that you spoke to serve our God. And if you know anything about the rest of the Old Testament, Israel doesn't do that. They fall away again and again and again, leading up to why we need Jesus. 
This, this is part of why we do communion every single Sunday. It's a sign and remembrance of the promise and commitment we have made to God. And it's a sign to remember that our promise and commitment cannot be upheld by us, so we need the blood and body of Christ. And that's why we ask that only believers partake in this. It is a remembrance for us who have taken that vow. But even if you aren't a believer, I would like for you to know, today is the day that you set a stone as a witness. Joshua makes that decision very clear. Choose today whom you shall serve. Who are you serving? If you're already saved, are you serving God? Are you giving all of yourself or just some? Are you, are you going to church on Sundays and worshiping and, and loving the feeling that worship gives you, but as soon as you leave this church, you're thinking about the next time you can go out partying with your friends? Are you thinking about how you can make more money to be more successful, to buy more things, to lavish upon yourself, or even, even lavish upon those that you love? What's in your mind as you leave church? What's in your mind every single day? Choose you this day whom you shall serve. And let today be your stone of remembrance, a witness. And if you're not saved yet, once again, this is a hard decision. But please, if you feel any pull on your heart, if you feel any slight, slight draw towards what I'm talking about, Talk to someone. We're not going to press you into salvation. We're not going to push you until you can't turn around. Like I said, this is a hard decision, and it's a lot, and we want to help you with it. Because at the end of the day, I promise you, it's worth it. It is so worth it. So the band can go ahead and come on up, and they're going to play, and we're going to go into a time of communion. There's going to be elders over there. I'll be over there if you want to talk. Talk to someone. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. That has been echoing in my mind all month as I've studied this passage. Who am I serving? Am I surrendering all? Or am I living an almost lifestyle? Am I living in the gray area? Dear God, Thank you so much for your word. And those that go before us who have brought your word so faithfully and so lovingly. God, I pray that I didn't hurt too many feelings today. But that your conviction washes over those who need it, including myself. God, thank you for the gift of Christ because we cannot obey you. I want to live in that paradox. I cannot serve you, but I must try. God, you have given so much to us over the doctrine of our lives and over the beliefs and the ways that you've gotten us to where we go, Lord. And we cannot thank you enough and we cannot serve you enough because you are a holy, unblemished God. So thank you for sending your holy, unblemished son to die a holy death so that you can see us as holy and unblemished. 
And thank you for salvation. Not salvation so we can go to heaven, but salvation so that we can dedicate the rest of our lives to the God who has set into motion the past in our life. You are a good and loving Father and you've given so much, Lord. Thank you for that. I pray that nothing that was of, that anything that was not of you does not leave this place. It falls upon deaf ears. No one hears it. But God, any truth that you spoke today through your word and through your servant, let it not stay here, let it go. Let it live a surrendered all life and not a surrendered almost life, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.